Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I remember going into my parents' room night after night begging my father, promise me you'll never die. He said to me, Susie, it's normal to be scared. And this for all of us right now, this is not a normal situation. If you are feeling fearful or worried, that is normal. Our emotions have evolved to protect us from threat. And at the moment, we are under threat. It's normal to be scared and you can still choose to do what's meaningful. You can still choose to love and be and hope and dream because courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is fear walking. That is psychologist and author Susan David, PhD. And this is episode 337 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 337 of the show with uh, psychologist, author, incredible human being, Susan David. She is just so great and I, it's her second time on the show. And I can't wait for you to hear this conversation today. If you're new to this show, uh, this podcast is simply a podcast, a conversation designed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something that you hear on this show today, on every episode of this show, will help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. You're going to hear something you need to hear today. I'm going to guarantee it. On Mondays, I speak with the guest. On Fridays, I speak with you. And there are 336 other guest episodes to listen to, and I don't know how many hundred uh, of me just chatting. So uh, get stuck in. 
I'll tell you a little bit more about one other episode that I've got in mind, if this one tickles your fancy in just a second. If you don't know who I am, uh, my name is Osher Ginsberg. I'm a, a TV and radio guy from Sydney. I'm also an author. Um, I'm a podcaster. I make a podcast with Charlie Clawson called Dad Pod. I've got an extraordinary wife, Audrey Griffin, uh, who's upstairs. We finished Ozark last night, and I don't know what to do now. We finished all three seasons of Ozark, and I'm like, oh, shit, what happens now? If you've watched Ozark, you know what I'm talking about. And um, she's amazing. And we have two kids, one's 16, one is just about nine months old. He'll be nine months old this week. And um, what else do I do? I ride bikes. I, um, I lift sandbags in my backyard and put them back down again. And I am currently trying to figure out what kind of animal is scratching behind the jip rock. Um, because we live in a part of the city where small furry animals congregate. And there's something small and furry crawling around behind the jiprock and the dogs are going fucking mental. So <laughs> I don't want to know what the hell I'm going to do about that. I'm going to have to figure that part out. I don't know what to do. Anyway, um, how are you going? Are you going all right? It's an interesting week. Interesting week. It's uh, May 2020. And uh, so you know what's happening right now. If you're listening to this in a year or five years, you you know what's happening right now and you know what we did next. But we are right now, we're all just figuring it out as we go along. And uh, some parts of the country are slowly coming out of lockdown a little bit. They're easing restrictions on what we can and can't do because we are in a pandemic right now. Personally, I feel that the whole situation is very poorly communicated. I feel there's a bit of a communication breakdown happening. In the words of Briggs, you know, I don't think he, did, he said to me, he said, oh, look, mate, 10,000 people don't go to Bondi Beach out of spite in the middle of a social distancing lockdown. They go because they don't understand why it's important they don't. And it hasn't been, they haven't been communicated that clearly enough. And similarly, I don't know if people realise that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is still around and it is in our community quite a bit. And we all still have to be very, very careful the lockdown easing is not a message saying virus is over, come out wherever you are, everybody go back out and hit the playgrounds, it's on. No, it's not a license to go back to how we were. It's trusting us as a community to move forward with a new way of being, having time to get used to this is how we have to go shopping now, this is how we have to work now, this is how we have to figure out how to do what we do because there's this disease in our community that cruelly won't touch two people the same way. Some people, it won't affect at all. Some people, it will, you know, show up as, a, as some sort of weird, mild group of symptoms. Other people, it will absolutely just kill them dead. And it shows up as, as this weird hematologic, can, can cause blood clots. It can cause, it's very strange, very weird disease. And, um, doesn't it's indiscriminate and you just don't know who's going to get hit hard by it it's really weird but it's really important to understand that it's still within our community and significantly so so to you people at Coles today walking past me in the aisle very closely and you people waiting outside the cafe nearby all just chatting together using lots of words that apparently began with a letter p so you're spitting all over each other and every single person that I saw over the last week pushing the button across their road using the soles of their foot. Come on, guys, think of other people. Think of yourself. Be selfish if you have to. I could be sick. 
when you walk that close to me, you put yourself at risk. What are you thinking? We really have to look after each other. We have to. That's the only way we're going to move forward through this. It really is. I get that I'm dying to escape. We're all dying to escape. But we have to be aware that this is how it is now. This is how it's going to have to be for a while. There are people who are immunocompromised in our community that are under enormous risk. People you may not even realize are immunocompromised. People who might have never had to say, and now suddenly they might have to say to their work, look, you know, I don't feel comfortable about coming back because, you know, this is what's going on. That, that's all up in the air, right? So just please be careful and try to be kind. Like if someone's not doing the right thing, they just might not know. They might not realize that, oh, this still is out there. And we have to be careful. So anyway, speaking of being careful, thanks heaps for the emails. I got an email to wish Carly a happy birthday. Hey, Carly, you're a paramedic. I can't imagine what it's like to be a frontline healthcare worker, a paramedic trying to help people who are, the last thing on their mind is thinking about coughing into their elbow during a pandemic. That must be extraordinary because pandemic doesn't mean that every other health emergency stops. No, what at all. Carly, happy birthday. I hope you're doing great. There's a, a bunch of stuff going on that might lean towards you not doing so great. There was an email sent to me by someone you care about, but I hope you're doing all right, Carly. And thank you so much for doing that job because you are part of the reason I love living in this country. We live in a country where if you are faced with a health crisis and you don't know how to fix it, you can pick up a phone, put three numbers into it, and someone like Carly will show up breaking all kinds of road rules uh, within a couple of minutes to come and save you. That's amazing. So Carly, thank you. Happy birthday. Also, thanks to everyone that took the time to rate and review the podcast through the week. That really helps me. And the other thing that is extraordinarily helpful, if, if you really, really want to help this show, tell someone else about it. All right. Just find an episode and you go, you know what? I think this person would really dig this. Send it over. Just copy the link, send it over. Hey, I think you might enjoy this. That's it. That really, really helped me. Thanks to everybody that uh, let me know what they thought of the talking to your MP about climate change episode. I hope that helped. Uh, he emailed me back, actually. We've been emailing back and forth a bit, so that's been good. You'll find out more about that. You're going to listen to Friday's episode, and, and it's there. Listen, I uh, am very, very excited to get Susan David back on the show. She's amazing. Before I do, though... I wanted to draw your attention to another episode from the catalogue that might tickle your fancy. If living with discomfort and living with anxiety and living with uncomfortable feelings the way that Susan David describes it is something that is interesting to you, you may be interested in episode 314 with DJ Tom Nash, an extraordinary man who, after contracting meningococcal disease, became a quadruple amputee. He is the living embodiment of acceptance and commitment to action in accordance with his values. And he and I had a fantastic conversation. Sometimes I've had, well, not sometimes, fucking all the time, I have people that will approach me and say, oh, I never could have gone through what you have. And I think to myself, well, really? Are you sure? Because you haven't really been put in that position yet. I probably would have thought the same thing before. What I'd rather people to think is to look at me and think, oh, turns out humans can go through some pretty horrible shit and be fine. <laughs> Maybe I can too. 
it's so much of a more rational take home from that and I, I sort of hate it when it's the opposite I know they're trying to be nice like I never could have gone through what you did it's like dude fuck off sure you can shut up <laughs> Episode 314 of Better Than Yesterday with Tom Nash is in the podcast feed that you found this episode on, or just search for it wherever you find your podcasts. So let me tell you about my guest today. I am so thrilled to welcome back to the show, Susan David. Susan David, PhD, is one of the world's leading management thinkers, and she is an award-winning Harvard Medical School psychologist. Yeah, Harvard, that one. She is a number one Wall Street Journal best-selling author. Her book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive and Work in Life, I consider it an absolute must-read. I was doing a charity Zoom thing on the weekend. I've done two charity things on Zoom this week. I think my record Zoom call was one of them. It was 400 people. That's the best Zoom call I've been on so far. Uh, yeah, Emotional Agility is one of the books that someone asked me about, and I absolutely recommend that as one of my go-tos uh, if you're just getting into the idea of learning about how your brain works and how you might be able to take some control in how you know managing your own mental health and mental well-being. Susan's TED Talk was how I, uh, I found out about her. When I first saw her TED Talk, The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage, goodness me, it's, it's had well over 3 million views by now. It was an absolute revelation when I first saw it. Susan's been on the show before, episode 254 of the show. We covered off quite a bit about her backstory, which was really cool. I would thoroughly recommend getting stuck into that one. I, I wept a few times during that. Her uh, backstory was quite emotional and it, it's extraordinary and it does lay the groundwork a fair amount for how she came to have the career she has. However, when this pandemic lockdown first started, when it was very clear there would be quite a economic hit to the community and quite a mental well-being hit to the community, I reached out to as many people as I possibly could to get on this show, to get on this podcast, to do my what I could to help put some tools out there for people to deal with what is happening in the world right now. And the last few weeks of episodes have all been about that. And this episode was the result of the very first email that I sent out. Susan wrote back within just a few hours, uh, which is pretty epic considering she's in Boston and um, I'm in Sydney and I was thrilled thrilled that she wrote back. And I said, could you please come on and help me talk about some strategies to deal with not only the uncertainties of what's happening in the world right now, but also the fear and anxiety of what might come and just living with the uncertainty of it all and changing situations financially. And can you help me out here? And she jumped at the chance. And I couldn't be more grateful because I talk about Susan's work quite a bit on this show, and for good reason, because I personally believe that her ability to communicate complex psychological techniques that you can use yourself to help you heal and help you manage and live in recovery and, and look after your own mental health, her ability to communicate these techniques simply and effectively, it is just beyond comparison. And what Susan can say in just a few words can absolutely change your life. It most certainly changed mine. She's on Instagram, she's on Twitter, she's Susan David underscore PhD on both of those platforms. Uh, you can find her online, susandavid.com, and, and once again, her book is called Emotional Agility, and there's an emotional agility quiz at susandavid.com that you may want to check out. I'm so very grateful to put this episode out into the world. Enjoy the second time that I've got to spend having a conversation with the delightful, the extraordinary Susan David. Good morning. Where are you in the world? I'm in Boston. 
in Boston. Uh, yes. Right. Well, we've we've moved house since you came over last time, but we moved out of an apartment into a house. As you know, we we live in a lovely part of the city of Sydney, and so I tend to you know walk around quite a bit, and I tend not to drive too much when I don't have yeah. to. So I'm always out and about, and people see me, and um, it's hilarious. We get paparazzi going. Da, 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 da. It's like I'm gone to get bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, I, I get it. I completely get it. Like, what? You don't get just... bread? I go get bread. Yeah. We need bread. <laughs> so you're in Boston, Susan, firstly, thank you so, so very much for getting on this podcast with me today. When this lockdown kicked in and as we could start to see what we knew as the kind of ability to predict economic certainty for the next couple of years just vanished in thin air in front of all of us, I was like, I'm really going to have to start talking to some people to help us all get a, a few tools to deal with this. And I was like, Susan. She'll because I'm quoting you left and right. Like I quoted you in two separate podcasts this week. I'm like I should probably get go to the source and, and get Susan on because I'm sure that I mean you're in lockdown too, right there in Boston. We're in lockdown. We've pretty much been in lockdown for the past eight weeks. Wow. So a little bit sooner than typical. My husband's a physician, and so we really are in the midst of the entire experience, including him spending a lot of his weekends trying to design masks. Wow. So as a physician, I'm guessing he was privy to a lot of reporting in the health journals that probably weren't getting covered in the mainstream media. Correct. So very early on, he started to talk about how, you know, I'm talking now January about how we're going to need to change the way we do things, that this is coming and we need to be aware of it. So, yes. Oh, so you got the jump. You were like, I'm just going to wander down. I'm going to buy all the pasta and no one's going to, I'm just having a dinner party. Exactly. We did uh, covert hoarding. (laughs) Or actually, it wouldn't have been called hoarding because we were just buying what we knew we might need. And and actually, it proved useful because we have not really been able to leave the house. Yeah. My brother and his husband, they live in Michigan and they used to live in China. And so, as all their friends from China were texting them and they were talking to them and going, hey, this is what's happening. My brother's husband just went, kind of wandered down to Costco and just (laughs) emptied shelves or whatever, like weeks ahead, weeks ahead of everybody else because they, you know, they could definitely see what was on the way. That does lead me to, I guess, my first question, like, what do you think it is that led so many governments around the world to just go, no, nah, no, nah, that pot, that can't. Why, why would you think people would be in denial that this was on the way? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. The first is that we know that people are really drawn to the idea of comfort and predictability. And we see this in our daily lives. You know, we like our routines. We want our routines. And so what starts to happen is there becomes a bias in terms of what information we pay attention to. And, you know, we pay attention to typically the information that confirms what our worldview is or what we hope to be the pathway forward. And so that's what we pay attention to. And we see this playing out individually, but also on the world stage. And the other part of this, I think, is that there is a tendency that human beings have towards rigidity. We get stuck into focus on what we're doing right now, on what our pathway is forward, on what our goals are. And to be agile is really about being able to take other sources of information into account or to really be able to see the broader context. And as human beings, that is something that we find difficult to do generally. 
And when there are difficult emotions, that becomes more the case. We become stuck in particular ways of being and seeing things that stop us from being able to be agile and flexible. Yeah, but then if we do that, we just end up, we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot, don't we? Because we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to look up and see what's coming. And then when that thing does show up, whatever it is, it's like getting caught out texting on the freeway and suddenly you look up and the traffic stopped and then you're going to hit the car in front of you. There's nothing you can do about it because you weren't looking. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting in psychological research, Dan Kahneman does a lot of work where he talks about type one thinking and type two thinking. And type one thinking is this kind of very quick, intuitive thinking that we all do. So we, you know, might be an accountant and we're used to seeing patterns of numbers in a particular way. And so we start seeing all of the patterns in that particular way. We become what in scientific terms we often call, you know, there's this naivety of experts where experts are so used to seeing what they're seeing in their particular world that they are unable to really take other disconfirming source of information into account. But ultimately what that leads to is what I talk about a lot in my work, which is we have two things going on. The first is this cognitive bias, this disconfirmation of information that seems conflicting or that we don't want to hear. And then the other thing that happens is we have these difficult emotions that often are raised for us when there is a situation of fear or uncertainty. And so what we do is we often devolve into denial or trying to push away difficult thoughts. Or another way that we know human beings deal with it is that when we have emotions, especially emotions that provoke a feeling of what is called mortality salience. Mortality salience is this idea that human beings, you know, what is it that we've all got in common? We've all got in common that we will all die. All of us will die. And it's remarkable to think about how little we as human beings talk about this one thing that binds us together, which is that we will all die. And so there's this really interesting research that plays out again in politics, but in our own lives, which is that we actually spend a lot of cognitive resources trying to push away this reality. So we don't think about death. We tend in our society not to deal with the reality of death well. We medicalize and we push elderly people away. And so as a society, we don't tend to deal with these issues really well. So What starts to happen is we push aside this universal reality, and then this remarkable thing happens. There's a virus, and the reality is now no longer something that can be pushed away on our doorstep. And so what starts to happen psychologically when mortality is made salient to us, when it becomes more front and center, is there's a predictable response that happens. Human beings become much more focused on There is this fear that I've been trying to push aside. It's now in front of me and we become more tribal. So we become more focused on I'm going to protect myself and my own. I'm going to push away what feels different. And so what you see in times where mortality is made salient, whether it's through a virus or whether politicians saying, oh, people are going to cross the border and come rape you, as we've seen in the US, is that we see far more stereotyping behaviors, us and them, discrimination, and so on, also coming forward. So really what we're starting to see is this 
rigidity that is drawn both cognitively but also in the way we handle our emotions. And it's very much predicted by our intolerance for discomfort. Oh, my. Yeah, there is so much to unpack there. <laughs> wow. Crikey, what, a, what an opening batting. <laughs> Holy moly. You are, well, no, but that's, I, love, I love speaking with you. I adore speaking with you because you tend to have a way to unpack the way that we think and the common patterns because we're really our code. As I'm seeing, as Wolfgang gets older and older, he's eight months old. When I say, like every day, I see his neural pathways form. I see the patterns of behavior form. I see see him go, this worked yesterday, I'm going to do it. And his arm moves exactly the same way. And the same predictable outcome is that he wants is there. The perfect one I love, Susan, is like when he's seeking comfort in bed at night after I've, because I put him to sleep twice a day, at least twice a day. I put him down for his 9am nap and I put him down for his nighttime sleep at six. All right. And as I put him in his cot, he does two things. The left thumb goes in to the mouth and the right arm goes out to the side like he's trying to signal if he's on a bicycle. The right arm goes out. I put the bunny in his elbow. He grabs the bunny and he holds it exactly the same way every time, takes two breaths and falls asleep. Yeah, it's remarkable in two ways. The first is how much we as human beings need predictability and routine and comfort. And Why do we need this? We need it because it helps us as we get older to make sense of our world. If I have predictability, if I have these stories that I tell myself, it helps me to actually focus. It helps me to recognize that the washing machine that's buzzing in the background is not my child crying and that the one I can filter out and the one I go towards. And so we process a world that basically allows us to have this comfort and to fit things into their place so that we can understand it. That's what we need. What is the downside of it? The downside of that is we have a world that is predictable, that is a story that we tell ourselves, and that can mean that it can become very difficult to deal with situations in which there is discomfort And we haven't developed very often the emotional skills that allow us to do this. That's the first aspect. And then the second aspect is that we can become so stuck in these stories. Sometimes the stories were written on our mental chalkboards when we were five years old, stories about whether we're good enough, creative, mathematical, what kind of people we are. And these stories can actually start to create prisons around us, holding us back from living a life that we could live that might be quite different. So the stories are necessary and normal, but what stops us being agile as human beings is when they start taking us away from our values Mm -hmm. or from negotiating and navigating the world as it is. So it leads to denial. And I guess this is something that I talk a little bit about this show is like the the amount of pain that I feel, and I noticed this after um, when my first marriage ended after I got divorced, I was out for a run. And I noticed that the further I was from today right now, the further I was from that, the more pain I would feel. For example, if I was in the past, if it was, if only, if only, like if how many days, months, years back I went, if only I'd done this back in 1998, if I was going that far back, the pain was immense or the what if, 
what if this happens this afternoon, tomorrow, next year, 10 years, five years, 20 years, the further away I got, the more pain I felt. The further away I got from this is today, this is what's happening right now. If I was right here right now, it was okay. But the further away I got in each direction, it was far more painful. Let's say, for example, someone is experiencing that denial. And bear in mind, there's a lot of wild stuff happening all over the world right now. I'll focus on Australia. There's a lot of economic uncertainty. There's coming in, closing in on about maybe one and a half million, two million people losing their jobs, which in a country of 25 million is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of industries that have just vanished hospitality, restaurants, cafes, that sort of thing, gone like surety of predictability of future. And let's say, for example, someone is stuck in that denial of like the idea of like everything's going back to normal. Well, good luck, (laughs) you know. And even me saying that will be very difficult for someone to accept. I think it's such a powerful question. You know, I think about my work, my work on emotional agility, where did my work draw from? And we've chatted about this previously, but, you know, I was – a white South African growing up in apartheid South Africa in a country and community that was committed to not seeing, to denial. I recall when I was 15 years old, my father being diagnosed with terminal cancer and him dying and me going back to school. He died on a Friday and I went back to school on the Monday because there was this idea that I should just get on with things. Okay. And so people would say to me, how are you doing? And I became the master of being okay in inverted commas. I wasn't okay. I was in denial and that denial played itself out in an internal struggle with myself where I was feeling regret and pain, but trying to push it aside, trying to ignore it. And for me, psychologically, it played out in using food to numb my pain, you know, binging and purging as so many young girls do. So a lot of my work is drawn from this idea that as human beings, we so often use denial. But what does denial do? What denial does is it simply perpetuates pain because When you deny, often what you're doing is you're firstly engaging in coping strategies that are going to compound your pain over time. It might be over drinking or over sleeping, using drugs, or even getting sucked into social media. What we're doing is we are in avoidance. We are compounding the issues that we have to deal with because now I'm procrastinating or I'm avoiding. So now no longer am I in a situation where I'm just avoiding the thing, but I'm actually not solving the problem. I might have my boss on my back. I might have my finances going into a you know terrible downward spiral. So we often, when we deny, we use difficult coping strategies that compound our issues. But the other thing, of course, that happens is there is a perpetuation of our psychological pain because we are in internal struggle with ourselves. And so what do we do in this situation? I think one of the most important parts of dealing with where so many of us are at right now is what I call really gentle acceptance. And what do I mean by gentle acceptance? If you walk out today and it is pouring with rain. Gentle acceptance is basically noting, gee, it's raining outside. 
cap, that's gentle acceptance. It is what it is. A lack of gentle acceptance is when you say things like, gee, it's raining outside and I wish it weren't raining. Why is it raining? Why does it rain every time I want to leave the house? What, you know, so gentle acceptance is not the same as passive resignation. It's not the same as saying it's hopeless, it's hopeless. Gentle acceptance is simply saying it is what it is. And simply using those words, it is what it is, can immediately allow ourselves to breathe into the space of reality so that we can then start being more productive. And when I say productive, I don't just mean in a work sense. I mean productive as people, <laughs> as people. Yeah, because if you're stuck, you can't get anything done in your day. You'll sit there and just flick through your phone for hours so you don't feel shit. You're stuck. And so, you know, this is really interesting psychologically. There's this incredible paradox that we know for human beings, which is that acceptance is the prerequisite to change. It's only when you accept what it is that you're facing into or what the issues are that you're currently experiencing, you know, whether that's through addiction or whether it's even gentle acceptance of the reality that your job may not be your job down the track. Gentle acceptance is the prerequisite to change. And we know that it's only when the city stops being bombarded that it can be rebuilt. And often when we're not gently accepting, we are in a place where we are just bombarding ourselves with frantic feeling around for things that we could do or ways that we could numb the pain. And so gentle acceptance is critical. I can talk more about other things that I think are crucial, but Please. it doesn't begin without beginning. No, but and that's, that's an extraordinary thing. Like acceptance as a prerequisite for change is because I'm sure there's, and I certainly have it in my in my own situation. You know, I'm thinking about, I had four TV shows to shoot this year. You know, I built my career to this point and I was very proud of it. And now we we stopped after only a couple episodes and I don't know what's going to happen. So this this steam train of this, it's, you know, I'm to my own point, Susan, like I'm this almost second coming of my career that I've worked so hard to get this momentum up and it, it's firing along. Suddenly, whoosh, gone, rug out from under me. Nothing I can do about it. Nothing I can do about it. And so... Yep. Every day I try to remind myself to be in this acceptance, but every day that voice is like, come on, what if it never happens again? What if it's all over? You just bought a house, mortgage, you know, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work and I'm experiencing the same. And my husband, who is a physician on the front lines of this medical crisis, you know, we're experiencing in different ways. You know, we're not all in the same boat, but we are in this together, but differently. Our situations are similar and different for every single one of this. And the thing with gentle acceptance is that it in many ways is easier than all of the other hustling that hmm. we do in order to pretend that things aren't going to be, oh, you know, or yeah. to push the emotions aside or to try not to think about it or the exhaustion that comes when we get stuck in social media, which is, 
a different kind of avoidance. And so gentle acceptance is really about this kind of breathing into the self. It's, it's yeah. about breathing into the self. I'm a bit worried. The denial does play out in very in a, in a bunch of ways, and I can see denial playing out. And there's one bloke I know. He's not super close to me, but I know him well enough, and that he's just down the rabbit hole of, no, no, this is all orchestrated, da 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 He's on, he's on signal now yeah. because, no, 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 I can't talk on Facebook. You know, friends of mine are getting kicked off for posting the truth. I'm like, mate, just diving into conspiracy theories about anything, I guess I understand a conspiracy theory, Susan, because you want to believe that there's some reason that this is happening other than no one's got any control over this. No yes. human has and control over this. This is thing. It's terrifying to believe that this is beyond anyone's control. It's just happening and we have to deal with it. No, it has to be because someone has created it as such. And that way I can kind of compartmentalize it in my head and then frame it and rationalize it. And then it's me versus them. But it's not. It's not. That's the thing. It just isn't. It is what it is. It <laughs> is what it is. So that that is absolutely key. Another critical part of this is self-compassion, mm. okay? You might look at your situation and you might say, oh, you know, I'm so disappointed that I've lost these opportunities, but I'm one of the lucky ones. I shouldn't be so disappointed. At least I've got, you know, and of course it can be helpful to think about ourselves relative to what our pain could have been, but your pain is your pain, mm. Your loss is your loss, and it's a real loss. And so I think a really important part also of us being whole and healthy human beings is not to push ourselves into a situation where we start saying things like, I shouldn't feel, it's not okay to feel, where we take away the legitimacy of our feelings. Be kind to yourself. You have done the best you could under the circumstances and you're in a place where you are disappointed and it's reasonable to be disappointed. And so I think that this idea of self-compassion, it's not something we often talk about in society because society or, you know, when I talk about society writ large, you know, really would have us believe that we are all in a never-ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition, <laughs> where if you're not meditating for 12 hours a day, when you're not fit and healthy, have a great job, drive a great car, blah, 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 that somehow you're less than. And so the idea that actually we should be self-compassionate can come off as being weak or lazy or lying to yourself. Mm-hmm. But self-compassion isn't about those things. Self-compassion is about recognizing that you, all of us, people listening, all of us, we're all doing the best we can with the resources that we have got individually and with the circumstances that we are in. And as it turns out, when people are self-compassionate, what this does is it creates a sense of psychological safety. It creates a safe place within the self. And from that safe place, that's where you are more able to take effective risk or to put your hand up for a new project, even though it feels difficult, or to do something that is new. Because what you're doing in that context is you basically are allowing yourself to explore new ways of being, knowing that if they don't turn out, that you will still love yourself anyway. And just, you know, by the way, you're probably seeing this with Wolfie, Mm. there's the same concept that we see in children, that when a child 
has what is called a secure attachment. The secure attachment allows them to go and explore. You know, they crawl away, 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 and then they turn back and they look to see that their secure person is still there. And knowing that their secure person is there is what then allows them to explore. And so what is self-compassion? Self-compassion is that analog within the self. I am here for myself, and when I'm here for myself, that allows me to explore. This is, by definition, when we're in the space with ourselves, we move away from fighting what is into wholehearted living, which brings with it the capacity to take risks and to try new things and to know that we'll be for ourselves even when times are tough. And that is the hallmark of agility and resilience. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The idea of not giving yourself compassion because it, it might be weak or, you know, that's the thing that won't let me get forward. I think that's an interesting paradox there and that similarly, it is in the acceptance that allows us to change, but it is also in the, what you're saying, I believe, is that it is in the compassion for ourselves that gives us then the space in which to make the next move. Correct. That is exactly, you know, I've been thinking about this in the context of COVID-19 as being almost like an emotional hierarchy of needs. Yes. So, you know, we've got this like Maslow pyramid, which doesn't have a lot of scientific background, but is a useful heuristic. But I've been thinking a little bit of what are our emotional needs in this time? And I think the first one really is about this acceptance. It is what it is. The second is about self-compassion. But a third one, of course, is that pockets of routine are actually critical because of what we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast, which is that human beings need coherence. We need predictability. It's not a bad thing to have coherence and predictability. If we didn't have it, we'd be living our lives on the fly all the time. And that is not helpful. So we need coherence and predictability. And within that nurturing and creating pockets of routine is actually critical. We have a kind of psychological and physiological body budget. And when we don't get enough sleep, when we aren't exercising, when we are not eating healthily, we literally incapacitate our capacity to then self-regulate 
and to bring ourselves forward effectively to the situations that we face. So now more than ever, it is about creating pockets of routine. You know, it might be you know, still trying to wake up at a particular time. I had someone recently say to me on Instagram that they've got a nephew and the nephew, which I thought was so cute, this little nephew's homeschooling and still puts on his little school uniform every day to do the homeschooling. But there's something powerful about that. You know, you're creating these parameters and I think it's really helpful. But within creating pockets of control, pockets of routine, we also often need to consciously let go of what cannot be controlled. You know, what cannot be controlled? We cannot control what one or another politician puts in their speech. We can't control whether people are hoarding toilet paper. We can't control also our thoughts and our emotions because we often have this illusion that we can control them because, of course, again, the narrative in our society says have positive thoughts only. If you have positive thoughts, you will manifest a positive reality. And truly, that's nonsense. We have around 16,000 spoken thoughts every single day. We have thousands of transient emotions. If you're going to spend a lot of your time trying to push difficult thoughts away and trying to think positive all the time, you are again rooted in denial. So don't try to control whether you have one or another thought or one or another emotion. Your thoughts are neither good nor bad. They are neither positive nor negative. They just are. You know, they just are. What becomes so-called negative is when we get hooked by a thought or an emotion, when it starts driving us in ways that are incongruent with our values. But a thought or an emotion, it just is. You know, don't try to control what you feel or what you think. You did tell me, I think, last time you, you spoke, it was a, a cracking, I love a three-word slogan, like a good Australian politician, data, not directives. That's what you, you kind of spoke about those. I guess, you know, when you spoke about the thoughts, you're also speaking about the emotions. You know, I'm feeling fear, I'm feeling anger, I'm feeling... But if it's data, not a directive, you can go, okay... And then instantly you can separate yourself from it and go, there's fear. Okay, I can see that there's fear. It's like looking at the temperature for the day. Okay, it's 22 degrees. All right. I'm not 22 degrees. It just is 22 degrees. All right, what am I going to do about that? I might not wear a sweater today. <laughs> yes, yes, that is exactly. It's like these emotions come and go. These thoughts come and go. They are data. They are not directives. And so often what happens when we are feeling stressed and anxious, sad, is we get hooked into our thoughts and our emotions, we start treating them as fact. And so what we start doing is we start saying something like, I am sad, I am angry, I am being undermined. But when you use that kind of language, when you say I am, what it makes it sound is as if you are the emotion, you know, you are the temperature. But of course, you aren't the emotion, you are not, I am sad, you are not 100% all of you defined by sadness, you are you. And the emotion is a data source. And you've got other parts of you that you can bring to this experience. Now is the time for all of us to be able to draw on parts of ourselves that include uh, wisdom, courage. We've spoken about compassion, acceptance. Now is the time where we can draw on these other parts of ourselves. 
But when we become overly strongly defined by our emotion, when we get hooked into it, we stop being able to do that. And the way that I think of this in metaphoric terms is when we get stuck in an emotion, we start saying, you know, I am sad, I am angry, I am stressed. We are the cloud. We start becoming the cloud, becoming the temperature. But you are not the cloud. You are the sky. You know, you are the sky. You are big enough and capacious enough as a human being to have many different emotions. You don't need to be defined by any one of them. Now, of course, this takes some skills, and we can talk about what some of these skills and strategies are that help us to get this distance. But we are not the cloud. We are the sky. If this is new for somebody who's suddenly realizing, well, I'm not the cloud, I'm not the sky, that's all well and good for you two to talk about. You know, you've sat in front of each other and you've had a cup of tea. I am alone. I was without a boyfriend or girlfriend before this happened. I haven't been touched by another human in five weeks. I don't feel like anything. I look at my phone. My friends are in there, but so is all the TikTok and so is all the porn and so is all the gambling. And so is everything that I, I do through my day. I am just meat surrounding a skeleton eating food pooing and weeing, I'm nothing, you know, and mm-hmm. I, that's, I am so lucky that I have a family. If I was a single person and, you know, someone who had a propensity to, I don't really want to go out today, I'd be five weeks into some sort of weird Howard Hughesian nail growing competition, you know, yeah. <laughs> it would be so hard. Like, how do you get those strategies? So you don't find yourself just like in this fusion, in this hooked kind of loop, just going round in circles such an important question. So I think the first thing is a lot of times when people are hooked, what they start using is very big labels to describe what they're feeling. So they might just go, I'm stressed. You know, I'm stressed. I'm stressed. Everything becomes defined by this big label. And what I've found in my research and others have too, is that there is incredible power in labeling our emotions in granular ways. This is called emotion differentiation or emotion granularity. So if you're someone who's just saying, I'm stressed, there's this huge diffuse way that we're describing a full range of emotional experience. But there's a world of difference between stressed versus exhausted, disappointed, grieving, lonely. And when we label our emotions more accurately to describe what it is that we are actually feeling, what this actually does psychologically is it allows us to understand the cause of the emotion and also starts to help us to put in place strategies that might be helpful. So I'm lonely. What is beneath loneliness Beneath the loneliness, it's such a tough experience, but our loneliness is a signpost to our values. Our loneliness is a signpost that we value human connection and we do not have enough of it. So when in COVID people are talking about social distancing, it's actually not social distancing. It's physical distancing. Okay. It's physical distancing. So you might need to remind yourself that you are distancing in a way that is physical, but that you are still needing to nurture your emotional closeness with people that you care about. Now, you may not be able to touch them, but 
you can have meaningful conversations with people. You can explore with your best friends their hopes and dreams. You can have dinner parties in which you all discuss what does courage mean or what do you want to do when you move out of the situation. Like We can nurture our connections. And that loneliness that you've now gone from stress to, oh, it's lonely, starts helping you to get a sense of what are the values that are important to me here that I need to be moving towards. The same for something like exhaustion, because, of course, a lot of people aren't in situations where they're completely by themselves right now. They're people in situations where they are trying to homeschool their children, work a normal job routine and just are feeling completely overwhelmed. And so moving from I'm stressed to I'm exhausted, again, start signposting what is it that you value here and that you need to move in the direction of. And it might be that you are needing to value this recognition that resilience is something that comes out of being able to be restored and that restoration for you might be about doing a mindfulness exercise. It might be about listening to a beautiful piece of music. It might be about having a bubble bath. It's going to be different for different people. But again, when you've connected in with the reality of that emotion, it can help you to get a sense of what it is that you need. And it's going to be different for different people. So the first thing that I would say is be accurate with what it is that you're feeling. The second thing I would say is see if you can move away from I am sad, I am angry, I am being undermined. See if you can instead start to notice your thoughts, your feelings, your stories for what they are. They are thoughts, they are stories, they are feelings. They're not fact. Our feelings are not fact. So how do we do this? We can start using a very powerful linguistic technique that's used psychologically, which is I am sad becomes I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing that I'm feeling undermined. I'm noticing the urge to shut my husband out of this conversation. When you start noticing your thoughts, your feelings, your stories for what they are, thoughts and feelings and stories, again, you create critical space that allows you to bring other parts of yourself into the situation that you face. So I don't know if that's helpful to your imaginary friend. Oh, very. But yeah, there's so many of us in that range of situation. You mentioned the word courage, and uh, I'm probably going to get it wrong. But you have this fantastic line, courage is fear in motion or fear walking. Is Which one is it? So let me give you a little bit of the backstory to this, which I think is just powerful. Yeah. So when I was little, yeah. I was about five or six years old. At around that time, children start to become aware of their own mortality. And I remember going into my parents' room night after night, finding my way into their bed and basically begging my father, promise me you'll never die. At that time, he had not been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Neither of us knew that in 10 short years, he would actually be gone. But I was gripped by fear. And I said to my father, promise me you'll never die. Promise me 
you will be around. My father could have used denial or forced positivity. He could have said, don't worry, you know, I'll always be here with you. You don't need to worry about that. I'm always going to. He didn't. He didn't. He said to me, Susie, it's normal to be scared. It's normal to be scared. And this for all of us right now, this is not a normal situation. If you are feeling fearful or worried, that is normal. Our emotions have evolved to protect us from threat. And at the moment, we are under threat. So this is why I'm talking about, you know, facing into our difficult emotions, because these emotions are normal. So if we can recognize, and I think that what I understood from what my father was doing is that he didn't try to build some false buffer between me and reality. He said to me, it's normal to be scared. And what I understood by the way he guided me through those nights is he was saying to me, it's normal to be scared and you can still choose to do what's meaningful. You can still choose to love and be and hope and dream because courage, and this is the line, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is not about being fearless or pretending that the world isn't as it is. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is fear walking. Courage is fear walking. Courage is about being able to notice our emotions with curiosity. What is this emotion telling me about what matters? It's about being able to notice our emotions with compassion. This is tough, what we're going through right now. But it's also about being able to notice our emotions with courage because when we face into our emotions with courage, it readies us to deal with the world as it is, not as we wish it to be, but as it is. And when you do that, you are more able to make the change that you need in order to be resilient and effective. That change might be, gee, I think I need to get my resume together. The courage might be the courage to actually start learning a new skill during this time. The courage might be the recognition that you feel lonely and unsupported. And it's the conversation that you might need to have with your partner or your spouse about how you can meet each other's needs more effectively during this time. So courage, again, is going to look different for different people. But emotional agility, by definition, is being able to be with ourselves in ways that are curious, courageous, and compassionate so that we can take values-connected steps. And these steps allow us to deal with the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. It's extraordinary that you would be so generous to share that moment between you and your father. I'm I'm sitting here, I've got tears coming to my eyes listening to you say that. And I'm sure everyone wishes that it was your dad telling us that when we were little too, because, but I guess now we all have that, you know, and that's a beautiful gift that you, you give when you say that story. So thank you very, very much. Well, it's his gift. (laughs) When you mentioned courage, 
a big part of courage. And this, I guess this going forward, let's look, you know, December, let's look next March, let's look, you know, next July. We have been on this treadmill in a, you know, if you're listening to this, you have a smartphone. If you're listening to this, you are in this upper echelon of the socioeconomic planet that you can afford a smartphone and you can afford an internet connection, right? It might not be an expensive smartphone, but trust me, there are billions of people that don't even have clean enough water and there, is yeah. bil- there are billions of people that don't have, you know, what you have in your hand. So you are one of the elite. So if you are one of these people, you know, chances are you have this smartphone because it's better than the last one. Well, the last one probably did the same job, but you were like, oh no, I've got to, I've got to, it's got to, it's, it's, it's number 12. I've got to have number 12. Number 11's clearly shit. Oh, number, look at all the people in the ad. Number 12 looks amazing. I've got to get this, fucking whatever. All right. So we've come, we've been on this treadmill of being told this falsehood that as long as we keep accumulating more stuff, we're going to feel okay. We're going to feel full. We're going to fill the gap inside of us by yeah. owning more things or being living in this particular suburb or having a house that looks like this or going on holiday here or there. Now, there is a very real chance in my own family that we may not live in this house in a year. We may not have all the things that we used to have all the time. We most definitely will not be going on holiday where we usually go. And if our whole life, I mean, I'm 46, and, you know, if my whole life has been defined by I live in this suburb and I live in this kind of house, and, you know, to ask you about the courage of facing up to life as we know it around the buying of things and the accumulation of goods and the, the status of where we live and the size of our home and, and where we live and what city or town or suburb we live in within that city or town or suburb will most probably change and how we might have the courage to face that. And because we've obviously put a value judgment on, well, I would never live over there because people who live over there are there. And now, find, now you find yourself looking at the rental properties in that suburb because that's the only place you can go. That's going to cause some issues. And particularly if you've got kids, how are we going to talk to them about this kind of change? Like, yeah. could you maybe talk a little bit about, about that process? Yeah. And, and, you know, this actually interestingly circles back to the beginning of the conversation because this is this idea of how we often categorize things and label things as for me, not for me, good, bad. And it's a kind of cognitive rigidity that so many of us do. I think this is just so important, you know, when I'm thinking about these needs that we have and we start thinking about, you know, as we think about the progression of these needs, one thing that is really clear in the psychological literature is that when people take the time to actually, again, face into with courage. And I'll I'll tell you kind of some strategies that I think might be helpful here. But when people take the time to face in with courage, especially during difficult times, whether it's a divorce or a death or what we're experiencing right now, and they look at it and they try to understand it, what you actually start seeing is what is called post-traumatic growth. And I actually do think that there is collective trauma here. Why do I say collective trauma? Because when we have an expectation of a world that is safe and predictable and that expectation gets shattered, that actually becomes uh, definitional of often people's experience of trauma. So I think there's a collective trauma that goes on. And we look at how people can process trauma effectively. And what we know is that people who 
experience trauma, but who do particular things around this trauma along the lines of what we've described already, that you can emerge from this actually having profound growth that has happened. And what I'm not talking about here is a Pollyanna, positive thinking, fake positivity. I'm talking about actually real growth. So for me, for instance, with my dad, it was a teacher who said to me, she handed out these blank notebooks and I'd been going through this, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. And she handed out these blank notebooks and she had this invitation to the class and the invitation was, write, tell the truth, write like no one is reading. And I felt invited by that teacher to show up authentically to my grief and my pain. And I started writing. And that experience, years later, I had recognized, or I did recognize that that experience actually was so simple and yet as simple and small as these things are, it was a revolution for me because I started to show up into the reality of my experience and I started to write it down. And what happens when we write, when we process, is we start sense-making. We start deriving a feeling of meaning. So you say to yourself, you know, I didn't want this thing to happen. I didn't wish it to happen. But now that it has happened, I've learned about myself. I've learned that I'm resilient or I've grown from the experience. And so when we look at people who've gone through trauma and we look at growth after trauma, we know that people do grow, that they have a recalibration of things that maybe one day or at one time in their life seemed petty, what car they drove or what glasses they wear or whatever it is, those things actually may not matter that much anymore. There's a reconnection with relationships. There's a rekindling of values. And so this kind of growth is really important. And I think it's important for all of us listening to really open ourselves up to the fact that if we connect with ourselves in the ways that I'm describing, there's actually a kind of growth that can happen. Now, just very quickly, what you describe is, again, something that many of us do, which is we compare ourselves to other people. And social comparison is one of the most toxic human experiences that we can have. It is absolutely toxic. There is industries built upon it. Industries built on social comparison, <laughs> social media feeds built My on social God. comparison. It is one of the most toxic processes that we can have as human beings. Mm. No matter where you are in social comparison, whether you're comparing yourself to people who are better than you or whether you are saying, gee, I'm better than them. Social comparison, when you're doing it not in a way of empathy, gee, this person's struggling, but when you do it in a way that props one person up relative to another – Social comparison has a huge psychological cost. So social comparison is something that we tend to do. And also what we tend to do is we get stuck in, you know, we talk about viruses and we talk about viral contagion, but human beings also get stuck in social contagion. Social contagion is where one person drives one car, now we want to drive it, or they live in a particular house, we want to drive it. So you start asking yourself, how do I protect myself from this? Because to play out your question, the one scenario could be that, gee, I don't go on the holiday that I want and I feel terrible about myself, less than 
and depressed about it. The other play out is that you say, what is the holiday about? The holiday is actually about connection and presence with my family. And so what I've done here is I've actually started to surface what my values are. And I recognize the holiday was simply a little pretty ribbon that I put on this thing, but actually what's at core is my values. And how do we protect ourselves from social contagion? It's when we become far more grounded in what is it that I want to be? What is the heartbeat of who I am as a person? What's important to me? And so I think actually that is the way forward into wisdom out of this experience, which is about recognizing that we may have been on this treadmill, recognizing that it had a cost to us, and using this as an opportunity to actually recalibrate and think about what's important and really become not abstract about values. Oh, I value this, I value that. Even spending five minutes saying to myself, even in the midst of this chaos, who do I want to be? What kind of person do I want to be? That five minutes is five minutes that actually provides immunity from the kind of social contagion that you're talking about. And it's psychologically bringing us into the space of wholeness and resilience. <laughs> what a journey. <laughs> what a journey. You, I can't even believe it. It's like, that's like I've done 350-something of these shows, Susan. That's like a fastest hour I've ever done. <laughs> We could talk for 10, but I'm sure, you know. Susan, you are just. Yeah, there's so much to be connected with here and so much opportunity in this moment, again, without washing it. There really is. There, there truly, truly, truly is. Because even you know, when I think about it, and I, you know, I, in, in ways, you know, I was using that question as an abstract because obviously Audrey and I have thought about this. And at the end of the day, the very end of the day, you know, if we have to end up living in a demandable somewhere in the back of a caravan park, that's gonna be okay because we'll be alive. We'll have our health. I'll find some yeah. job somewhere. We'll have food. Blissfully, there's universal healthcare in this country, so we'll be okay. And that's it. It'll look different to what it does like now, but we'll still be all right. The same things will make us laugh. It'll be an adventure, but it, it won't be this, and that'll be all right. But, you know, because this, what you're saying is this social comparison and this, this social contagion has been the thing that has driven so many of our decisions. Like, we could just go on a, on a holiday to, crikey, we could go to a holiday on another beach, three beaches down from where we live, but then we wouldn't get the photo. We wouldn't get the photo to share on the gram, to show everybody, look at us yeah. in fucking Vale, yeah, <laughs> you know? And it drives so many of our decisions. And, like, to be honest, you know, I look at the young people in my life and you know, I see, like, that's a driver of some of their choices. <laughs> well, the economy in many ways is constructed around creating perceived gaps in ourselves so that we can fill in these gaps with different clothes or different holidays. So there's so much that gets constructed around the material world that basically becomes a driving force of the next job. You know, I've got to get another promotion. And, you know, it becomes a driver and it is predictive of burnout, of low levels of well-being, 
of depression, of anxiety. Of course, these situations are complex and there are many things that can contribute. But when we just come into ourselves, you know, I love this idea that we may not be able to go outside right now or we might not be able to go outside in the normal way, but we can go inside. We can go inside. And when we're going inside, inside of ourselves, where we find nurturance and friendship within our own world, where we have the capacity to actually be with ourselves, that is the most profound money can't buy experience that we can have as human beings. But we unsold that. We unsold contentment. We are sold discontent. And we are sold the idea that happiness is some kind of end goal that will be achieved when we have all of these accessories and accoutrements to our life. But what is happiness? Happiness is not a goal. Happiness is a byproduct of living a life that is consistent with our values and that is integrated. What I mean by integrated is that we feel that all of the parts of our experience are connected. We don't have this part of ourselves where we're like, oh, I don't think about that. I don't go there. I'm not going there. I don't want to think about that. Rather, we've got integration and coherence and a sense of values. And happiness comes, as you know, Osha, you know, through your own experience, happiness comes as a byproduct of that. It's not the end goal. And once, I guess, at the end of this this journey that we've been talking through, once we have that value set, once we have this recognition of I've have I been just chasing what a billboard said I should do, that's not what actually makes me happy. The giggle of my baby makes me happy. Watching my, you know, what makes me really happy is like the homeschooling thing. I'm listening to my eldest. You know, she's upstairs doing. She's in holidays right now, but she was upstairs doing the Skype calls for her school and listening to the way that she questions the teacher. You know, who else? would ever get a chance to sit on in their on their grade 11 kid yeah. going to school. Like, that would be super creepy if you were a parent sitting outside the school. But yeah. hurry on, I'm listening to her. I'm like, holy shit, gee, that's freaking good. You know, this in her uh, in her business studies class or in her history class or whatever, I'm like, that's a damn good question. Uh, it makes me just beam with pride. You've got this glimpse. I can't buy anything that makes me feel like that. There's nothing yeah. I can buy that makes me feel like that. No money exchange will give me that. And it's exquisite, you know. And I guess once we've had to think about those values, once we've been through this journey, I guess, you know, like that then allows us to go, okay, well, what's the next move? We've come so far from denial. Now here I am. Now I've kind of got an idea of what's actually going on. I've got an idea of where these emotions are. I've got an idea of where my values are. You know, you say courage is fear walking. Walking is taking steps. What's the next step? What's the next step for me? Yeah. I love what you said. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And and I think that like even this thing of how do you use this right now in your experience, if you just ask yourself, who do I want to be in the midst of the uncertainty? What kind of parent do I want to be? What you do is you start moving yourself away from the, I'm frustrated. I can't deal with this into, ah, oh, I want to be present. It doesn't mean you can be present every minute of the day, but what you're doing is you're elevating that value and it becomes a powerful guidepost to your actions. What that allows us to do, especially when we are living in close quarters with one another, is we can often be, you know, the cruelty of this virus is that we are simultaneously distant from people we love and we are often in claustrophobically 
close quarters with people we love. So there's this cruel, cruel situation that we, we are in. And what this can mean in the day-to-day is that the people we love the most are also people who are frustrating us most <laughs> because we in this situation. So we can start saying to ourselves, as human beings, we get so hooked on, you know, I am right and you are wrong. And, you know, I did this and you didn't do that and you didn't pick up your clothes. We can start using this as a guidepost in our day-to-day. You know, I might be right. My husband might have left his clothes on the floor or she might have not done this or I might be right, but is my response serving me? Is my response bringing me closer to being the person that I most want to be right now? So our values are both future directions and future-based, but in the here and now of the everyday, there's so much that's out of our control. But what is in our control is how we respond and how we bring ourselves to the situation that we face. Susan, you are uh, an oracle. I'm not. I'm not to use that word lightly. Like, not only are you able to give so generously in a conversation like this, but doing so while the love of your life is on the front lines as a physician, on as a as a healthcare worker out there dealing with, as we can all see in America, a questionably managed pandemic. <laughs> um, and people are using it as an opportunity to carry weapons around the streets, and it's freaking scary where you are right now, that you are able to have this conversation uh, so presently with me right now while all that's going on is uh, we could all aspire to be like that, Susan, I tell you, man. I live in Boston. I don't live in America. Uh, Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) Right. Uh, You know, I, I I, I live in a place that is very thoughtful. And science based. Yeah, my brother and his husband are in Michigan, which is an open carry state. And uh, the governor there, geniusly, her name's Gretchen, something I can't remember her last name, but geniusly the other day, um, there's people marching around out the front of her house with automatic weapons because it's my right or whatever. And she just, her quote was like, Your gun won't save you from COVID 19. Yeah, like, what are you raging against? Like, you're raging against a virus? Like, <laughs> or, or at the moment, are you holding up a placard saying, My body, my choice? Which is, again, the irony. Yeah. Like, okay. It's an extraordinary time in history. And as you mentioned, it is an extraordinary time to have a damn good look at what our own lives were meaning and how we might have been doing things and how we might choose to go, what am I learning through this? What do I want to keep with me? As you mentioned, what are some pockets of uh, routine that I might be able to create now that I can carry on that are helpful, that I haven't been doing, that allow me to shift emotional states a little easier or give me a sense of purpose and a sense of happiness that I otherwise didn't have because now I can't buy things to make me happy. Yes, yes. And the recognition, of course, that life's beauty and its fragility are completely interwoven. We are all of us young until we are not. We are healthy until the diagnosis brings us to our knees. And it's so easy to get stuck in this moment But if we recognize what our ancestors went through, and if we even just think about, you know, if we were in outer space and we were looking back at this ball of earth, you know, there's so much that is going on in the universe. And so often we get so immersed in our experience that we don't kind of hold to this idea that beauty and fragility, life and death are fundamentally interwoven. And the more we can open ourselves to that, the more we actually become present and resilient. 
Susan, I adore that you are in the world because for me, I'm a science guy. And for me, you bring all the things I like about spirituality and then you just back them up with research. And I'm like, there you go. All right, now I'm in. <laughs> just... I'm a science girl, but I also love art and poetry and beauty and the integration of it. It's glorious. All right, Susan, I adore that I got a chance to speak with you today. And again, the generosity of which you have just shared in this conversation is just an exquisite gift that you've given all of us. And, and just thank you so, so much for making time for this, Susan. I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you for inviting me and for just bringing your ideas and your energy to the world. I just love connecting <laughs> with you and we'll do it again. I can't wait. Susan, stay safe and cook something yummy. I will. I okay. will. Bye. Oh. She's the, ah, ah, she's fucking cool, man. That woman is just the greatest. Oh, shit. She's cool as shit. Man. <sighs> Honestly, Andy, when I hear conversations like that, I think, fuck, you know what? It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Okay, so you don't hear that very often. That's just a little message that I left for Andy, my producer. <laughs> Because um, I, I hung up from the Zoom call, and um, it just—I was just so blown away with what Susan's done and the way that we spoke. And I, I was just say, Andy, leave it in, because I was just frothing on how good it was. So there you go. Now you know how excited I was to have Susan on the show, and now you know why, because she's amazing. Please reach out to her. Let her know that you heard her. Please get stuck into her work. It's evidence-based. Like I said, she's at the Harvard Medical School. She's an extraordinary person. What she does and what she believes and what she teaches and what, you know, what she... It's, it all comes from, you know, scientific research and it's all evidence-based and that's the best part for me. That's the best part about it. And I, I just adore her. She's a fantastic woman, just a wonderful human being. And, um, yeah, if you've never read her book, enjoy it. If you've never seen her TED Talk, enjoy it. Um, yeah, it's, it's life-changing stuff. I hope you got something out of this episode. If you have, uh, please do let me know. Let Susan know. You can find her online, like I just mentioned, or you can find uh, me at uh, sendosheremail at gmail.com. Susan's on Twitter and Instagram at SusanDavid underscore PhD and SusanDavid.com is where she is. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to go upstairs and eat leftover barbecue food that I made on the separate barbecue that we have in our house. I have a vegan barbecue which is the greatest. I have a barbecue that is never going to see meat or gluten. And it makes me so happy. So happy. I've dreamed of such a thing for about 15 years and I finally have it. And I barbecued some capsicums today and they are amazing. I'm going to eat the rest of them for dinner. Um, so thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Look after yourself. Thank you, Andy Ma, for producing this, for Rachel Barrett for being my show producer, Hayley Van Spania, who did all the socials this week, uh, Mike Mills as well for all the music. If you need me, you can you know, find me on email. If you want to send me a photo of what you're looking at when you're listening to the show, just tag me on Instagram. Hayley will make sure that I see it. You're amazing. You're the best. Thank you so much for listening. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.